Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. I'm very excited to bring you brand new episodes. To start, I had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Richard Primont. First, we discussed his career trajectory and then moved on to record a series of episodes in which he shared the history of the significant discoveries that shaped our field. I had such a great time chatting with Dr. Primont. I hope you'll have as much fun listening. Before we dive into this episode, I would like to take a moment to thank our Dr. GPCR ecosystem partners, Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. Please mark your calendar for our next symposium held on Friday, November 17th, on the topic of GPCRs in immuno-oncology. The symposium is free, but you must be a Dr. GPCR ecosystem member, which is also free. For our last event of the year, we will be hosting a roundtable and discuss GPCRs and their role in immunology and oncology and current therapeutic modalities in this context. The GPCR retreat is coming up November 2nd to the 4th. Although registration is closed, the organizers are looking for the event's next logo. Please visit gpcrretreat.org and get more details on the logo contest. Wouldn't it be fun to have your design associated with this iconic meeting? And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I'm delighted to have with me Richard Premont, or Premont, depending on on where you are. Richard, very nice to have you back. Well, it's nice to be here. Uh, thanks for agreeing to do a do a history lesson. <laughs> I I think I think it's going to be awesome uh, for the audience. Uh, Richard is here today to discuss the history of G proteins. Um, him and I got well. You emailed me basically with this proposal and I, my, in my head, the light bulb went off and I said, of course, we need to talk about the history of our field. And today's episode is dedicated to the history of G proteins and ways to study G protein activation. So where would you like to begin? Well, you know, so this, this is a field that's really kind of full of Nobel prizes. So kind of wanted to kind of go through all the various Nobel prizes and the, and the foundational work that got us here, right? And, and it starts in kind of some places you don't necessarily expect, right? So the way I see it, we the, the field kind of grew out of three different topic areas that were very different at the beginning. And now we all think of basically as almost the same. Uh, the first being energy metabolism, which, you know, is kind of off most people's map, but we'll, we'll see why in a second. Um, um, but also uh, hormone action, right? So the very first hormone that was discovered was something called secretin, or some people call it secretin, but secretin um, that was found in 1902. And it's something that's made by the small intestine that is secreted by the small intestine and changes the stomach acid, right? So um, so there's a, there's a whole history of hormone action. They're all, you know, basically all of endocrinology is... Um, identification of different hormones. So secretin was the first, but then not that long after there was insulin and glucagon and ACTH and TSH and, you know, many, many, many others. Um, so there's a whole field of endocrinology. And then we, we've we been blessed by nature to have um, pharmacology of natural substances, right? So traditional medicines have always known or for you know, a long time have known that various substances have effect on the body. And a lot of these things like opioids, you know, we now have converted into drugs. So, I mean, one of the problems we have with orphan receptors is not only do we not know what their ligands are, we don't have 
natural substances that seem to interact with them either. So we don't we don't have that hint about what they do, right? Um, so those are the kind of the three starts for the field. Um, so I'm gonna gonna start with basically with, with metabolism, right? So in in the old days, i.e., when biochemistry was first invented, it was a German thing. And biochemistry came to the United States with uh, Gert and uh, and Carl Corey, right? Gert at Washington, Washington University, and they were giants in the field of metabolism, right? A lot, a lot of the metabolic enzymes that we, you know, we learn in all our biochemistry courses, they identified first, right? Um, and they're important to the field for two ways. One. They they looked at glycogen metabolism in the liver. So basically, the you know the liver is there, takes up all everything you eat, gets digested, goes to the liver, and the liver converts all that sugar, all the glucose, into glycogen to store it for later. So you don't have to eat every five minutes, right? Um, so they're looking at glycogen metabolism, and it turns out that hormones regulate glycogen metabolism. So this is this is the start of the field, right there. Um, so they got the Nobel Prize in 1947 for uh, you know look, looking at the the enzymes that regulate glycogen metabolism in the liver. But the second important thing they did was they trained a lot of people. So American biochemistry you know, has its roots in that lab, right? Mm -hmm. And among the people for you know, our particular interest today, among the people that they trained is a guy named Earl Sutherland, right? So I'm sitting here at Case Western Reserve University and uh, Sutherland was a professor here mm -hmm. uh, in the 1950s and through the 1960s. Um, and he won the Nobel Prize, and I have to look it up, da, 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 in 1971 um, for the discovery of hormones acting through cyclic AMP. So he discovered cyclic AMP as a second messenger that was done here. Um, and he did that together with a collaborator, uh, Thomas Rawl, who was also a professor here. Um, but the other thing that is important that he did is he also trained students, right, <laughs> at, yeah. as these things go. And Case was very, very innovative at the time. And they they are the ones that originated the MD-PhD combined degree program, mm -hmm. right? So in the very first class of MD-PhD students that were admitted here, there was one guy, Farid Murad, or Fred Murad, mm -hmm. who worked with Earl Sutherland. And he started out working on cyclic AMP, but soon switched to cyclic GMP. And he won the Nobel Prize in 1988, <laughs> um, 1998. For the discovery that nitric oxide um, stimulates guanyl cyclase, and this is how well, nitric oxide is a, is a is a vasodilator, right? Um, you say, well, that's not GPCRs, but in fact, it is because most of the control for how nitric oxide is made through nitric oxide synthases is all GPCRs. So all all the receptors, endothelin, all those things on endothelial cells that activate the nitric oxide that activates the guanyl cyclase that causes vasodilation. That's all. That's all GPCRs. So, um, so that was here. Um, okay. And, um, so backing up a step, right? So the, another strand, another person that trained with the Corys at Wash U was Edwin Krebs, right? So Ed Krebs went to Seattle where he met another guy called Ed Fisher and was also a faculty and they worked together for many, many years. Um, and what they discovered is the way that cyclic AMP works is through a protein kinase that we don't call protein kinase A. Okay. And protein kinase A is the first protein kinase, and this is this is basically phosphorylation, phosphorylation and dephosphorylation. So that's what that's what they discovered. Um, and Krebs was a student of, of the Corys, right? Um, so I mentioned that that Fred Murad was here as an MD PhD student working with Sutherland. 
Um, but there was another person just two years later, Alvary Gilman, <laughs> who was an MD-PhD student here early on. And he didn't work with Sutherland. He worked with Ted Rawl, but same group, right? It's like mm-hmm. Lefkowitz-Caron or whatever, you know, the same same basic group. And he worked on cyclic AMP, right? And he's the one that shared the Nobel Prize in 1994, 1994 uh, with Marty Rodbell for the discovery of G proteins. Wow. Right? So basically, this all started, you know, from metabolism, and it's and it's all it's a generation of teachers and students that are working on yeah. basically the same problem, the same pathway. Yeah, they keep on winning Nobel prizes. It's <laughs> a good, it's a good, it's a good place to be mining for Nobel prizes. It seems right. Um, yeah. So now everybody's aware. In 2012, Bob Lefkowitz and Brian Kobilka got the Nobel Prize for their discovery of uh, what GPCRs really are. And the X-ray crystal structure, you know how how they function. Um, and interesting of all, of all these different Nobel prizes, of course, all of them were medicine or physiology, except Lefkowitz yeah. and Kabilka, which was chemistry. Chemistry. Which I'm sure had the chemists kind of a little bit up in arms. And I, I I guarantee you, there's a very interesting story there. And after whatever fifty or seventy years, the Nobel Committee opens up their archives, and somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to tell us we'll why to, we'll get to find out why but a, there's something interesting there but anyway so that be that as it may um yeah. there's that um but the the other the other one i want to mention just as a as a as a, a by the way is there's another nobel prize that was given in 1988 um to someone named sir james black who was a pharmaceutical chemist at, at a company called ici imperial chemical industries which has since been absorbed into you know i think it's now Part of GSK, but you know it, it was a, chem, you know, a chemical company, um, and he he won the Nobel Prize along with uh, George Hitchings and Gertrude Elian, all three of which worked at drug companies, right? Uh, and what they got the prize for was for rational drug design. So they invented the idea instead of taking a natural product like you know heroin right <laughs> well actually heroin is is is, is it modified but you know it's yeah. t- taking opiate and then modifying and making things like heroin and taking you know salicylic aspirin and making aspirin or taking penicillin and making ampicillin yeah. which is what the chemical companies did they created a rational drug design which is really the beginning of our modern pharmaceutical industry right the important thing was that what sir james black worked on was the adrenergic receptor so he is the one that developed propranolol, which is the first GPCR rationally designed antagonist wow. that then became marketed as a, as a heart drug, right? Uh, he also did cimetidine uh, and some you know, various other things. Um, but basically, that after that, there was an explosion of work in this kind of nascent pharmaceutical industry, particularly in the adrenergic receptors, because they had that kind of head start with propranolol, which is basically what gave Bob Lefkowitz and Mark Caron the tools they needed. Right. Yeah. So they had they had a, you know, so you remember, you know, Lefkowitz started out studying ACTH receptor uh, when he was a, it was basically a postdoc and there weren't a lot of tools available. And when he when he switched, one of the criteria, if you've listened to his his podcast, one of his criteria was, well, it's got to be something intracardiovascular system and it's got to be something that's got tools. This is where the tools came from. Right. Because yeah. that the pharmaceutical industry started making new drugs based on a novel way of doing a rationally drug design. So, wow. so that's wait, kind of all the, that, that's the Nobel Prize to get us to where we are. And, you know, who knows what's coming up next? <laughs> exactly. What a way of thinking us down memory lane. And I think 
for at least for my generation, um, all of these processes and everything you just described was taught in a metabolism class in undergrad. Right. Um, right. And it's it's it the the when I think of, when I thought about it in the past is it was that this was a given. We knew this. You're you know you have to learn <laughs> no. it, and then you take an exam, and then you move on. But actually, I'm glad that we're talking about these because there and for all these discoveries, there's people who trained people who worked on specific right. topics to make these discoveries to get us to where we are today. And I feel like from a GPCR perspective, it started out in the cell or around the cell to get to the point where we actually need to, to figure out how these molecules that were discovered, either whether they were hormones or, you know, cyclocampi intracellular uh, effectors, we needed to discover the the inside and the outside of the cell to then figure out, okay, how do these molecules actually function? That's what led us to some extent to GPCRs. Right. And, and there's a, there's a, there's kind of a, a, a well, for us old folks, there's kind of a joke that, that, you know, people who worked on the small GTP binding proteins, particularly RAS, mm -hmm. the people in the signaling field hated the RAS people back in the day because they, they, they had, they had a G protein, right? They had, they had their small G protein and you could do things like make an activated mutant and, and micro inject it into a cell and see that it did things. And that was really cool. They had no idea what receptors activated it. They had no, you know, they had no, they had no wiring diagram in the in sense, like they didn't have the receptors, they didn't have effectors yeah. and they're trying to figure it out. And it took a long time. And they kind of came in, people came into the field and kind of tried to take things from it to, to, to bootstrap their, yeah. their, you know, their work. And we kind of make a mess in the literature and then they'd leave <laughs> because it didn't work. <laughs> um, but because but we're lucky because we started out having the hormones. So we, we had you no know, secretin and glucagon and ins, you know insulins on GPCR, but we had you know we had these things to yeah. work with, right? Um yeah. that, that allowed us to, to then say, okay, what do they do physiologically rather than starting in the middle, which is kind of what we're doing with orphans, right? Kind of you know where you're starting in the middle. Exactly, exactly. But but now we have more tools to tackle the orphans, although That's it's right. not ideal. But it's back in the day, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, but, it, but as soon as someone identifies physiology, the poof, it just, you know, it cracks open yeah. once the orphans. Exactly, exactly. So the, so the other kind of historical event that I think people need to be aware of, and, I, you know, uh, Bob Lefkowitz kind of mentioned this briefly in, in, in his podcast, is that there was a historical event that really shaped... A generation of biomedical science and it's completely completely unexpected um so it's the 1960s and america united states is in the vietnam war and we still had a draft we still had a prescription so if you turned 18 you were subject to the draft right yeah. and the way around it was well you go to college and then you get deferred but when you go to college you're still in for the draft oh i'll just i'll go on to med school okay well you get deferred until you're done with med school. But what they did is by the end, you know, toward the end, they needed physicians overseas in the military enough that basically every graduate of medical school in 1967 or 1968 or 1969, they were guaranteed they're going to go overseas for two years, basically doing MASH, if you remember that old TV show, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people were not too thrilled with this because it was a very unpopular war, right? So... There are ways around it. You could instead of join instead of being drafted into the army, you could join another service, right? So my father was his, his generation was during the Korean War. Um, he joined the Air Force because he didn't like the chances in the army sounded sounded better, right? Um, so what a lot of people did who were physicians who were in this kind of situation is 
you could apply to be in another branch of the armed services. And so that includes the Army and Navy and the Air Force, Marines, you know, not the usual, but also includes the Coast Guard, right? But it also includes the public health service. So the public health service has people that actually go around, you know, around the country and they actually do, you know, infectious disease. Actually, you know, they're, they're real yeah. physicians that are going around. Um, but they had one thing that was very unusual is that you could take a posting as a uniformed officer in the public health service and be assigned to do research at NIH. Which so. is what Bob did. Because <laughs> what Bob did and, and many, many other people. Uh, well, not many other people, but there were, you know, there were probably 20, 25 people a year. But those, but those 20 or 25 people a year were were heavily, heavily selected. They were the best of the best of the best, sir, you know. Um, and so among the people that were there that, you know, names you're going to recognize, right? So Al Gilman was there. Bob Lefkowitz was there. Um, Fred Murad was there. Uh, Fauci was there. Harold Varmus was there. It was just, you know, all the leaders of biomedicine over the past you know, since that time, basically, were there, um, and 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 the way that happened is because they were there. They were bright, you know, bright kids. They're all, you know, whatever twenty twenty five. Yeah, um, they're all focused. You know, they're all medical people that were suddenly focused on research, and that's what they had to do. And it was a very exciting time, right? So the you know DNA code had just been worked out, and the, you know there's there's a lot of cool things going on. Um, signaling was just kind of at that cusp. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as Lefkowitzen mentioned, when he was doing his, his interview with you, you know, he was set to figure out, well, how can we do a binding assay for a ACTH or adrenocorticotropic hormone, right? Uh, but he was not the only one. There are other people there that were doing the same kinds of things in other hormone systems. So there's quite an, and all these people knew each other, right? So that they're all talking to each other. They're all kind of helping each other. Um, so I don't think it was quite, a, you know, it's not as competitive as it, as it turned out to be later. Um, so... In that environment, right? So one one of the people that was not one of these, and they called them yellow berets, right? So one of the people who was not a yellow beret was a, a, a recent graduate student who just was coming as a postdoc named Lutz Birnbaumer. Um, and he worked for a guy, Marty Rodbell, who was looking at um, glycogen metabolism in the liver, as people did, looking at hormone regulation, um, and also regulation of fat, adipocytes. Um, and what Marty was doing different from everyone else is at that time, everybody was studying hormone action in live cells. So either in animals or, or in, you know, cell culture was just coming of age and there were just people doing things in cells. Marty was doing things with broken cell preparations. And he figured out how to do adenyl cyclase assays where they did activity using your, your, your favorite, you know, Dowix and Illumina columns using radioactive yeah. ATP and then separating the cyclic AMP and counting it. Um, mm -hmm. So when Lutz joined his lab, the first thing they did was he 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 re revamped that assay, right? So when you did those assays, you probably used something called the regenerating system RS. I, do, I honestly don't remember. I, I, I do remember basically that. Basically, what what Lutz did was 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 fix the kinetics because so here you have an assay. You're adding ATP as a substrate, and the enzyme eats the ATP. So to get good kinetics, you want the ATP to stay constant. So he figured out a way to add the different enzymes and extra ADP and extra other things, phosphocreatine, to kind of keep the level of ATP constant so that you get nice kinetics. So that so that's what they did. Um, and with that, he was looking at glucagon-stimulated adenyl cyclase and characterizing how it's stimulated by various things and how it's inhibited by various things. Um, and what they, you know, then after he got that working, that was all nice. I got a couple of papers. Um, 
then he decided, oh, we need to do some binding assays because all these other people around are doing binding assays. So he figured out a way to, to radio label glucagon, which is basically, a, it's 29 amino acid peptide. It's a, it's a pain in the rear to work with. I spent years playing with it. Um, and he, it basically the, the method that we use to, to label it is the one that Lutz defies, which is basically you, you iodinate it. Um, but you have to pick the right form. There's only, you know, mono iodos, only one iodine. And on one particular location, is the one and you got to separate it from all the other stuff. And they okay. figured they sorted all that out and he got a nice binding assay and the binding assay is working great. So they get, you know, nice specific binding. It's got good affinities down in the nanomolar. It looks good. If you do it on membranes from a cell that doesn't, you, you know, doesn't have the receptor, you get nothing. So everything looks good. And then they decided to be fancy. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the origin of G proteins. <laughs> so they decided, well, we're doing the binding assay in this, you know, just simple buffer with a little bit of nothing in it. And we're doing the cyclase assays in this complicated buffer with all this other stuff in it. Wouldn't it be great if we could compare binding and activity in the same buffer? So they did the binding assay on rat liver membranes in this complicated buffer with all these, you know, with, with ATP, but also with this ATP regenerating system, and all these enzymes that kind of help keep the ATP level high. And the binding went away, it dropped. And when they look more carefully at it, you know, the, the, the affinity went down by like a factor of 10. Wow. So, uh-oh, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because now under conditions where the hormone is supposedly active, it doesn't bind very well. So that, that's weird. What's going on? And what it turned out, and it took it took a lot of work and, and you know, all credit to them. Um, they finally figured out that the problem was, is when they added ATP to the binding assay, the binding went down. And hmm. they thought that was really kind of weird and um, did some kind of sleuthing around and realized that, oh, wait a minute, when we buy ATP from Sigma, whoever they bought it from, you know, it says on the data sheet that you get with it, that it's got 1% contamination with GTP. <laughs> so they very carefully, they tested GTP and GTP blocked the binding just like ATP did. But instead of working at millimolar or 100 micromolar level, which is where the binding assay or where the cyclase assay level was, it was doing it down to like, you know, low micromolar, mm -hmm. much, much, much lower than than ATP was. And then when they did, so they said, well, okay, so let's just try, I mean, you need to have ATP there for the cyclase assay to work, but let's use purified ATP that has no GTP in it and see what it does to the cyclase assay, nothing. No activity. <laughs> so, nope. no, I was gonna, now I was going to say, so through this entire time, it sounds like it was the contaminant GTP. That was the active principle. Yes. <laughs> wow. So, so basically the field is founded on an artifact. <laughs> <laughs> I think right. this it, is phenomenal. The first assay they did when, he, when, when, when they broke open cells and tried to do a cyclase assay and they added ATP and tried to measure activities, they got nothing. It was only because it was a little bit of GTP around. So they did all these very careful experiments, and and they realized that 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 GTP is necessary. Now this other and this other kind of little 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 cool tidbit is so when so basically every every enzyme that uses a nucleotide, if it uses a, an ATP or a GTP, it's never ATP or GTP. It's always magnesium bound to those terminal phosphates. And they had done all these experiments looking at, at very carefully at the kinetics and inhibition and activation of the dental cyclase. And they'd found that magnesium 
was cooperative. That basically it had a Hill coefficient of two. So you needed two magnesiums for the adenylcyclase reaction. So with this finding that now you need ATP in order to make cyclic AMP, but you need a tickle of GTP, this is when that's the big breakthrough. You know, Marty realized, whoa, wait, you need the GTP, that's one magnesium. You need the ATP, that's another magnesium. And the ATP and GTP don't necessarily have to be on the same protein. And they knew they're working in this you know, here at NIH, right? They were there, they were there. And all these people were looking at cyclic AMP stimulation by all these different hormones. So they knew there are lots of receptors, uh, whatever a receptor was, right, at that time, that stimulate cyclic AMP. So Marty's big breakthrough was basically making the model of a three-component system, that there are multiple receptors, there's some kind of transducer protein that they're very vague about, but it seems to have something to do with GTP, right? And then there's the actual enzyme adenylcyclase, and they're different, okay? Now, you got to realize the world didn't have to work this way, right? So we, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, Fred Murad and, and soluble guanylcyclase activated by nitric oxide. But there's another form of guanylcyclase that is a receptor, right? So there's the, the natriuretic peptides that there are several different kinds that are the receptor and the guanylcyclase in the same molecule, right? So it's, it's, it's just one molecule that is a receptor effector. And nature uses that design, but... Not so much, right? I mean, the, vari the variability and the diversity of that family is pretty low, whereas this kind of GPCR, G-protein effector model, nature seems to love because you use it, you know, it's in the visual system, it's in the nose, it's in, you know. It's, it's and it's interchangeable as well. Yeah, you can play around and, and with it. And it's kind of, you know, it's Lego-like, you know, you kind of can plug in different, yeah. different, you know, yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of cool. So that so basically that that the whole model for how, signal transduction might happen. Again, this is just theoretical, right? This is they, they had yeah. very good evidence that there was something weird going on. This was their explanation and there was no direct it's... evidence for it. But that, yeah. that's, he, he put out the model for that. Um, and that kind of drove the field for the next, you know, dozen years while people try to sort out how how that all yeah. worked. I yeah. wonder if, if, if they would have gone around and collected all the different cell samples and used ATP versus GTP with the different hormones to see if they were, would have I been mean, they, they, to... there's a whole, there's a whole series of, of papers, you know, where, where over, over, there's like a five-year period there from okay. 60 to 73, where it's just, you know, one paper after another, where they try one, you know, they try one thing and then, oh, this, <laughs> you know, this works for glucagon, this works for epinephrine so the beta receptor it worked for ACTH it worked for all these other receptors as well yeah. um so yeah because they they were the only ones that had kind of the broken cell preparation that that could do this assay yeah. and they just marched straight through it doing a whole bunch of wow them so they did them. have so they did have a plug-and-play system a, a little in bit that yeah. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> in that sense um yeah. if someone would want to read these papers I mean, this is the '60s, right? So mm -hmm. it's not something that you can't pub. But I wonder, I wonder if somebody in the audience would might want to go and find these papers. I mean, they're not called G proteins yet. They, they are not. Yeah, you can. I mean, you have to search for them by the people, or, or you know, now we say, you know, I, well, there's a bit of a controversy there, right? I say adenylyl cyclase. A lot of people say adenylate cyclase, but back in the day, they just said adenyl cyclase. Okay. Well, if you just do a search for adenyl cyclase, you'll find a lot of these papers. Mm -hmm. um, but they, 
yeah, I, I mean, the way, I, the way I know is I know the authors, so I go and search. Yeah, my exactly, exactly. But, yeah, I'm but, just... but it was it was just the generic transducer at that point. There and it wasn't it wasn't no G protein around the G other protein. name. We'll get into the names in a in yeah. a little bit. That's a whole that's a whole other very odd story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since when when you mentioned uh, glycogen, and it, and I also mentioned you know going to university and having these these classes and taking all of these things for granted. One of our one of my classes during undergrad uh, was a lab a lab practice class where you had mm -hmm. to purify glycogen, and okay. uh, you had a yield at the end. And if you wanted to, you can take you could take the little glycogen that you purified, put it in a glass vial, and take it with you. I still <laughs> have it. Oh, you didn't you I didn't add, <laughs> add add an enzyme to it and then add some iodine no. and make it purple? No. <laughs> nope, nope. I still have the little powder in a little vial. That's mm -hmm. my purified glycogen with my own two hands. Oh. Good. Nowadays, they have, they have <laughs> students come in and they'll, they'll take a little cheek swab and make their own DNA and they can leave with a little. Wow. <laughs> That's, that could be also an interesting, an interesting uh, practice. Please. All right. So now we know that there is a transducer. It looks like there's three players in these systems. Five years go by with this plug and play system. A lot of publication come out. What next? So uh, a couple of things. So, so one, you know, if you think so, so converting ATP to cyclic AMP, right, you're chopping off two of the phosphate groups and then, and then cyclizing it, right? When, but most enzymes that, that are ATPases or GTPases, they're usually just removing the last phosphate and then you have ADP or, or GDP. So there are a lot of ATPases or GTPases. So the thought was, well, maybe this is a GTPase. So this is where Marty got, you know, got chemical, right, and invented non-hydrolyzable GTP analogs. So the first one he made is something called GPPNHP. So it's basically GDP with an amine group and then the last phosphate. So instead of an oxygen ether bond or yeah, ester bond, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a nitrogen. Um, and basically the enzymes don't know what to do with that and they can't they can't cleave it. Um, and what they found was was very interesting. So, you know, if you if you're doing a, a cyclase assay of, of whatever sort, you add a hormone onto a cell, and whatever you, whether you're doing it the old-fashioned way with columns or you're doing a nice biosensor, you know, in in a huge plate, however however you're doing it, um, it's very rapid, right? So you add the hormone, and stimulation is is you know not instantaneously, but it's 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 very fast. It's very fast. Um, what they found is that if, if you took these non-hydrolyzable GTP analogs and you added them to a cell lysate, you could get high stimulation of adenylocyclase, but it took it took time. And actually, it, it, the, the graphs were always like there, there was a lag period and then boom, then it shoots up. Um, and that lag period could be reduced by two things. Magnesium, so high concentrations of magnesium would do it, or receptor activation so adding adding hormone so what what they concluded is and, the, and he invented like there you know gtp gamma s is one that we still use right there there are other of these non-hydrolyzable analogs um what they finally determined was that the the non-hydrolyzable analogs were very slow about getting onto this putative transducer protein and that reaction was stimulated by receptor or by Magnesium, magnesium. And, it, and it turns out that actually what you know people look do all these you know things now or look at the structure of receptors trying to figure out the activation mechanism but 
in the end, what basically receptors are, are guanine nucleotide exchange factors for the heterotrimeric G proteins, right? They just cause them to change conformation so that GDP falls off and GTP can bind. PS, the, the affinity of G proteins for GDP is much higher than it is for GTP, but in a cell, there is no GDP. <laughs> so it's going to fall off of GTP binds. Um, but that, that, but that, what what the receptor actually does is it is it lowers the magnesium requirement for G protein activation. So, so that's why magnesium does the same thing as a receptor, basically. If you, yeah. um, but basically the, the 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 lag period was the time that it took for the G protein to be activated in the absence of a receptor, and once it was active, it couldn't hydrolyze the GTP, so it stayed active at full yeah. blast, right? Um, so this is a great tool because now you could add these these non-hydrolyzable GTP analogs to any kind of system and then see uh, is it is it activating the adenylcyclase and it would and then different you know you test different hormones to see which ones would stimulate that um with the development of GTP S, then people started to make radio, you know s35 radioactive yeah. GTP S, and the GTP S binding assay was developed so now you had you had something you could actually tag you know you could actually look at a physical entity that was binding and measure the physical entity that was binding the, the GTP, right? Yeah. Um, and at this point, when the GTP GMS assay was, well, what, when is that, basically, let me take three steps back. When is that moment where so people said, is, we figured out yeah. this so is in, some, please go ahead. 1974 <laughs> is, <Okay. laughs> is, is when that first one was developed. And then over the, over the course of several years, there are other variants that were, mm -hmm. that were, um, so, and that fit into kind of kind of kind of the next little story. So you've you've heard a little bit about this uh, from Paul Insull, right? Um, so there was a guy at University of California, San Francisco, named Gordon Tompkins, who was a PI. Paul Insull was working for him, as was another giant in the field of GPCRs and G proteins called Henry Bourne. Um, and what they did was they had um, a a tumor cell from mouse called S forty nine lymphoma cells, and so to back up a step, okay, so insulin is a hormone that is proliferative, right? So we know it's kind of, it kind of promotes cell growth and, and, it, and it's a hormone of, of, of uh, energy repletion, right? So you've, you've eaten a meal, so now there's a lot of energy around, insulin comes along to store the extra, right? Glucagon is a hormone of scarcity, right? So it opposes insulin by activating cyclic AMP, which among other things does things like break down glycogen to make glucose, to keep your glucose level up in your blood. It also causes the liver to do something called gluconeogenesis, right? So it makes new glucose because the cell doesn't have enough energy. So the whole, the body needs more energy. So that's, that's what it does, right? So cyclic AMP in general is what we call cytostatic, right? So it, if a cell is proliferating and you activate cyclic AMP, the cell will stop dividing because it's like, oh my gosh, I, I don't have enough energy. I need to, I need to concentrate on surviving, not on growing, yeah. right? But some cells, if you give them extra cyclic AMP, they actually die if the levels are too high. And the S49 lymphoma cells are, are one of those. Okay. Um, the, the flip side of this is there, there are a few oddball cells that cyclic AMP makes them grow. And they're, so there they are some of the cells, so people get weird pituitary tumors or, or thyroid tumors that are actually cyclic AMP is actually a proliferative signal. And there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole other pathway that goes on with that. But that's a very interesting kind of endocrinology <laughs> uh, 
uh, tangent, right? But anyway, so these S49 lymphoma cells, they die if you treat them with cyclic AMP. So what they did was a genetic experiment. They took the S49 lymphoma cells, treated them with cyclic AMP or, or a version of cyclic AMP, dibutyl cyclic AMP, to select cells that didn't die. But they also did it with isoproteranol. Well, not, yeah, it, it was isoproteranol, yeah. Um, so it basically activate the beta-2 adrenergic receptor and the cells would die and then you just collect the survivors and, and see what they're like, right? So there was a survivor cell from the screen that was stimulated by isoproteranol that they called cyclase minus or psych minus. Okay. Um, because those cells lost the ability of isoproteranol to simulate cyclic AMP, okay? But now there are all these tools starting to be developed, right? So you have the non-hydrolyzable GTP analogs, among other things. And if you did, if you, if you started testing those psych minus cells, what you found out is that um, they, you know, and they have binding assays for the beta receptor, right? So Lefkowitz had developed, you know, and, and Corona yeah. developed alpranolol by then. So you could do binding and show that the receptor was actually still there. Okay. Um, and you could do uh, assays stimulating um, with, with various other things and, and show that something, the GTP dependent step was missing. There was something that whatever was GTP activated seemed to be missing. And it wasn't clear if that was what we would call a G protein or whether that was the cyclase uh, until another tool was developed, um, which is a drug, uh, a compound, a drug called forskolin. Mm -hmm. So if if you, you may have a houseplant, the very pretty houseplant is called coleus. Um, it's, it's a native of India. Um, and the roots of coleus forskoli have this compound forskolin. Um, and it was found in the 70s that the forskolin activated basically if, if you if you took the took it right it increased your heart rate so if you injected it into an animal it increased their heart rate wow. um and what someone figured out was that it actually activated cyclic amp right yeah. and it turned out using that drug on the psych minus cells they found out that those cells are perfectly able to make cyclic amp when they're stimulated with this drug forskolin so they have the enzyme, they're just missing the GTP dependent factor, right? So now we're back to the three, right? So, so they have the receptor, they have the enzyme, adenylcyclase, but it seems to be missing the GTP dependent component. So um, that's kind of the first physical, you know, kind of demonstration um, that there's something missing in, the, in, in, in those cells that is that GTP dependent protein, wow. right? Um, so another strand of, of research that was going on around the same time. Um, so there's a disease called cholera and it's a bacterial disease and cholera causes its problems because it secretes a toxin and they're, and they're just like, they're, you know, they're, they're good bacteria and bad bacteria. There are, there are versions of the cholera bacteria that don't make the toxin and they're not, they don't cause disease. Um, but the versions that's, that have the toxin, they cause disease. And the disease is basically you, you get so much diarrhea that you dehydrate. And if you're unlucky, you die because your, your, your intestine is busy secreting water as fast as it can. And it turns out that what, what it's doing is actually, it was found to be activating cyclic AMP production. And through a whole, a whole series of work by a couple of, a couple of guys uh, in, well, a group in Israel, uh, Dan Castle and Zvi Selinger, um, found that cholera toxin was in fact an ADP ribosyl transferase um, that seemed to have enough, you know, basically it, 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 it takes... NAD in the cell and converts it to an ADP ribose group that attaches onto a cysteine residue. Um, 
And it does that specifically to a protein that is about 42,000 molecular weight. Um, and they found that by making, you know, they, they took a radioactive NAD and it it labels a, a, a protein in the cell as 42,000. And in some cells, it was a 42,000 and a 52,000, which we now know to be the GS alpha subunits. That's two splice variants. Um, and so now you got a way to physically tag the G protein. So if you take the collar toxin and you treat it's like minus cell membranes, protein's not there, no labeling, and they don't activate cyclic AMP. And the other thing is it activates cyclic AMP, right? And, and, and the way it activates cyclic AMP in a normal cell is when a when the G protein is actually modified by cholera toxin, it prevents GTP hydrolysis. So basically it turns a natural GTP right. into a non-hydrolyzable right. analog. Yeah. And it also exhibits the same kind of lag that can be activated by receptor, right? So it take, you have to load the GTP on for the collar toxin to do its job. Um, wow. So now you have a physical now you have a physical band on a gel. So now you get somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. Richard, before we move forward, can I ask yeah. a little bit more about forskolin? Well, obviously, I think everybody who's listening to, who listens to this podcast knows what forskolin is. And you use it as a as a positive control nowadays. You just order it and plop it on the cells in your GS assay. Um, any any, how was it discovered? If if you if you know, so I mean, it, it was it was just in a in a search for. So basically, it's it's um what they call Ayurvedic medicine. So it's a medicinal plant that's known in India, and people just went around. You know, just like there's the thing going on now where people are always taking all these traditional Chinese medicinal plants and trying to figure out what the active principle is. So this was you know China wasn't quite as open then, so people were doing this in India, and they just found that there was there was these strange, it, 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 the structure looks almost like a cholesterol, you know, um, it's just a multi-ring structure. Um, and if, you know, you just start dumping it on cells and you start dumping it, in, you know, put, putting it to animals, what does it do? And they noticed that the heart rate was, you know, much faster. Um, and then people started looking, well, what causes heart rate to go faster? And well, adrenergics and cyclic AMP, wow. and, you know, kind of, kind of came to that. Um, but Forskolin is also, it, it was very useful. So, I mean, I, I use it so, so much when I was in grad school. Uh, we were trying to purify adenylcyclase and there was a, there was a way to link Forskolin to a resin and try and use it as an affinity column, which, you know, in our hands, it worked okay, but not enough for us to beat the, the Gilman lab who uh, managed to get enough of their protein to clone adenylcyclase one. Um, and then, went on to clone several others. And uh, I gave up trying to purify adenylcyclase on forskolin columns at that point and just took their sequences and then cloned adenylcyclase five and six um, and adenylcyclase nine. Um, but, you know, but but it, the, the funny thing is, right? So um, my wife points out to me, we're walking through a through a, 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 a pharmacy one day, they sell forskolin, right? It's a, it's a weight loss. <laughs> so you buy, okay. you buy it from the counter, yeah. Um, which is really kind of wild, but it it, it, <laughs> it was so expensive back in the day because, you know, there were, you know, it's like, I, I considered, you know, I should grow some of these houseplants, <laughs> try to purify my own because we, we, we spent so much money, you know, on, on small quantities and then trying yeah. to you know, making, making uh, resins for purifying the proteins. Wow. Yeah. But it, but again, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it activates almost all of the cyclases, not there's AC9 is really very poor, but all the others, it activates very well. Um, so it, people use it as a wonderful positive control, or if anyone who's looking at 
inhibition of adenylcyclase. So looking at GI pathways, usually you artificially raise the level of cyclic AMP by treating the cells with forskolin and then looking at your hormone and how does it inhibit yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah it was a good find. It, it, it's yeah. been it a very useful molecule. Yeah. Very, very useful tool. Absolutely. And still getting used. It's, 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 it's <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The number of times I worked a lot on chemokine receptors and their GI coupled, the number of times in presentations where I had to say first, you know, it inhibited forskolin induced cyclic AMP <laughs> production. And it's, it's this, it's the mm -hmm. sentence that comes back a lot when you work on, on GI coupled proteins. All right. So GS long and short. Yep. Being... So, now, so now the, 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 the kind of the race was on to, to actually purify this protein because, you know, the, the kind of the Holy grail, you know, people didn't think cloning back in the, those days, what they really wanted to do was there's, there are people like, like Bob Lefkowitz trying to purify receptor, um, there are other people, um, you know, even near and, and it's folks in the Gilman's lab and some other me trying to purify adenylcyclase. Um, and there are people trying to purify the G proteins in order to put them all together to reconstitute them and show that these three components are necessary and sufficient to have, to, to reconstitute the, the hormone stimulated adenylcyclase system. Right. Um, so that's what everybody was working toward. So the, 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 the big movers in the purification business was Al Gilman and Luke Spurnbomber. Um, so what, 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 so Gilman was heavily involved in um, showing that the, this activity, this, G, this GTP dependent activity was the thing that was missing from the S49 psych minus cells, right? So you remember Paul Insel went to Gilman's lab yeah, <laughs> carrying with him some of the, some, you know, in order to do that, right? Um, so, and, and what, what they did and what got him, what got him the Nobel prize is basically they used the psych minus S49 lymphoma cells as a system, as an assay to purify fractions from other places, trying to purify this, what we now call GS and add it back into those membranes that didn't have any GS. And then you could, you could measure the activity for your different fractions, you know, and, you, and then pool the best fractions, put them on a different column, figure out how to, you know, optimize your purification. So that's, that was their assay, right? And what they used in their assay, right, you know, it's kind of, once you, once you bust open the cell and now you've solubilize the the everything with a detergent they use a, a detergent called lubrol so digitonin is famous for the for the the, the beta receptor for the g protein yeah. it's called lubrol which i don't think you can buy anymore i think it doesn't doesn't exist um but anyway everyone uses this this lubrol and once you did that you couldn't use receptor anymore right so what people would and you couldn't use forskolin because forskolin bypassed it um, collar toxin was very clunky and you're working with a toxin so what people use was something actually that that, that earl sutherland had uh, noticed back in in the, the early 60s was that adenylcyclase can be stimulated by sodium fluoride. Hmm. Okay. Um, and originally they, they never really looked into what it did, but what, what they thought it did was it was acting kind of as a phosphatase inhibitor, but they didn't, they didn't really know. Um, but anyway, fluoride was, was, it was known for this whole time as an activator of the system. Um, so when Gilman started purifying his, his protein fractions, they started, they gave it a name, right? And what they started to call it was G slash F. It was the, okay. the guanine nucleotide fluoride stimulated factor. 
right? So wow. GMO. Um, and they 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 purified it. Um, and the one thing I gotta say is right. So backing up, so so they were not alone, right? So the burn bomber lab was doing the same thing at the same time, and we can get into kind of you know publication has changed a lot, right? So. In those days, everyone published all the good stuff in JBC, and they're all relatively short papers with, that had eight figures, and each figure had one panel. And people were publishing, you know, they 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 publishing they're publishing so fast that a typical paper had two manuscript in preparations and two in press papers because wow. <laughs> they're they're all you know they're quickly publishing, trying to leapfrog each other. Yeah. Um, so they were you know they're two three four papers a year on the same topic that it just kind of inching toward a goal rather than nowadays people sit back and they, you know, they, 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 they have, you know, 12 postdocs working on a project for five years and they, they try and get their paper in nature. Right. Um, it was, it was a very different world and that, that level of, you know, competition slash unintentional cooperation, because you get to see what your folk, your, your competitors are doing. Everybody, you know, everybody's kind of inching along in the same, you know, you weren't, you weren't that, you're never that far behind because you knew what your competitors were exactly. doing pretty quickly, right? Um, so those two labs were, were, were kind of going at it, trying to, trying to purify the G proteins. Um, and a funny thing happened. And this, 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 one, of the, one of those really like weird. <laughs> so Al Gilman was at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and he, and he got an offer to go to UT Southwestern. So he picked up his lab and he moved, and, and and several people went with him, including the the principals, you know, postdocs who were actually working on this, were you know, really great guys, uh, Paul Sternweiss and Elliot Ross. Um, so the whole the whole group just picked up and moved. And when they got when they got into into Dallas, their assay stopped working. <laughs> it's, it's the star is it? Yeah, it, this is the worst thing that can happen. Uh, well, the, the worse than the best. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, again, it's opportunity, you know, adversity. No, absolutely. You're yeah. right. You're right. So I'm sure they were tearing their hair out. Um, but, but, and they, they got to the point that they, they you know, they're, they're taking the assay apart and they're, they, they literally were having water shipped in from Virginia, you know, trying to figure out what, what, what happened. And what happened was a couple, you know, it's, it's like an airplane crash, right? There's no one thing that goes wrong. It's always a series of things. So there are, there are at least a couple of things that changed that, that they didn't think were important, but they are. And, you know, it's kind of a lesson to everybody. Um, when they moved, right. So they, they, they changed their water source and you think you're purifying your water, right? You do a reverse osmosis through a millipore system. This is a long time ago. So things weren't, you know, 18 mega ohm. They were, it wasn't, wasn't quite as good. Um, and the water really was different in Virginia, right? It, mm -hmm. it had it had stuff in it that, that that didn't come out. That was you know it's in, during the mountains. It's a you know it's a different yeah. the, the water has a different life there uh, than it does in the aquifer you know in in Dallas. So the water was a little bit different. And and one of the ways it was different is it had aluminum, right? So uh, aluminum wow. three minus. Um, the other thing that did that 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 they did was that they switched from borosilicate glass test tubes yeah. to plastic and yeah. borosilicate glass also has aluminum <laughs> so there's a paper that they, that they published where they literally washed so they added a reagent to thousands of individual borosilicate test tubes and then took the liquid out and then did elemental analysis to see what the heck was going on and what they found was there was aluminum in there and so, long story short, if 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 they add aluminum to the sodium fluoride, 
it started working. Whether they whether they was doing it in the glass test tubes, whether it was using Virginia water, or whether it was just actually spiking. I mean, you, nowadays, if, if if you know I, what I learned was you know when you make a sodium fluoride solution, you spike it with ten micromolar aluminum chloride, um, because what it's not sodium fluoride that's actually activating the G protein, it's aluminum fluoride. So it's it's aluminum fluoride four, yeah. yeah, which looks spatially you know uh, molecularly just like a phosphate group. And the way it works is you have G protein bound to GDP. GDP is always there. And the aluminum fluoride sits right in there where the gamma phosphate should be just well enough to convince the G protein to dissociate and act like it's active. Right. Wow. So they, so they found this out, right? <laughs> but I mean, it was a, I'm sure it was a crazy time when suddenly, you know, your, your, your workhorse assay, you're, you're in this race trying to purify this protein and your assay just yeah. dead, stops Stop. working. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about dedication to go back and figure out that it's the aluminum oh, in the borosilicate uh, tubes and the water as well. And and they published it. I don't think people they would do it. that. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think people would do that today. And I think, I think this is, this maybe, speaks, yeah. yeah. This is amazing. So, <laughs> So again, it's you know it's a it's an annoying but happy accident. They figured they figured out yeah. how that works. So now we now we know why fluoride so yeah. uh, stimulates G proteins, right? Um, so I, you know that yeah, it's pretty crazy that you know basically the, the yeah. you you think you're controlling your experiment by you know you're buying reagents of whatever quality, whether they have a little bit of contamination or not. You think you know I'm using I, this this was you know. When I started in the lab, right, we, the, the lab I started in still had a drawer that had the little tiny one microliter and two microliter and five microliter mouth pipettes, right? And we didn't use them, but there's still a drawer. They still had them, right? And all those experiments that Lutz had done back in, in, in the late 60s and early 70s, that's what they did. So they're, you know, radioactive stuff, like microliting, five microliters, sucking on this little tube. And <laughs> wow. so there were labs, right? So we used to, we used to take our glass pipettes, you know, the, the, the 10 mil pipettes, and we washed them, use them again, again, again. Yeah. And didn't, we didn't switch to plastic till much later. And people used to wash and reuse their test tubes, but same, same way, right? We didn't yeah. use disposable, like, you know, microtubes, Eppendorf tubes. We use, yeah. we use glass test tubes. And, and it was a, it was a kind of new innovation to use new ones, but this worked with the new ones. But if you used old ones that had been washed, they had already lost the alumina. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work either. <laughs> wow. Talk about detail, being that's, detail that's, oriented. That's <laughs> so it's it's the things you don't know. I mean, you, you just kind of it's 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 in the background of your experiment. You think you're controlling for it, but yeah. And who knows yeah. what what are things are we doing every day that we're not really controlling exactly. for that are exactly that are critically critically important. And exactly. Until somebody. Is, <laughs> yeah, until somebody actually has a problem and then needs to figure out what happened. And I think this and, is. And then they, this is even a lever lower. Well, I mean, when I think about, for example an assay and you sit down and you write a protocol, well, it's great, but having having a video or having, you know, it, sometimes you do things during the, the assay that you may not realize that you're doing them and you don't get a chance to write them down. So mm -hmm. giving a piece of paper with a protocol printed on it to somebody and tell them, hey, good luck, do it, not as effective. <laughs> but to think about the composition or the the, the aluminum in the tube, I mean, this is, uh, this is really, really... <laughs> And next, next level. Yep. But the thing is, I mean, they, they, they're in a race and they needed it to work. So they took the time to yes. sort it out. 
and they sorted it out and they got their assay working. And PS, you know, they were the first ones to finally get to the end of the race and show that this activity was present in a protein complex of a 42 kilodalton protein they called alpha and a 35 kilodalton protein they called beta. And okay. that was it. So this heterodimer mm -hmm. was the active G protein. And okay. that's what they pushed. And there was that. Um, one one thing they hadn't noticed was that there is a gamma subunit. Um, and this is, you know, so Lutz's Lutz's lab noticed that there was a gamma subunit um, by an specifically by analogy to the visual system, right? Where it was known that transducin is alpha, beta, gamma. So they looked very hard for beta. Uh, and for gamma, and they 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 found it as like a seven kilodalton protein. So it was always it was at the die front. And actually, it's kind of funny. You yeah. can look at these old papers, and you can see you know there's a band, there's a band, and the die front they're staining there. It yeah. was there, it's just they didn't they didn't <laughs> look for it. Um, and then the and then the burn bomber lab also showed that the beta subunit um, of their purified G protein cross-reacted with antibodies and, and isoelectric focus mapped, right? So people didn't sequence, but isoelectric focus mapped. It was the same as the beta subunit from visual transducin, which was beta one. Kind of, you know, solidifying that link between yeah. the visual transduction system where you do have receptor G protein effector, right? So rhodopsin, yeah. transducin, uh, phosphodiesterase. Uh, and now in the hormone activated system, you had you know, receptor G protein adenylcyclase. Uh, even before the receptor cloning business had, had solidified that, right? Um, so it was really kind of cool. Um, so one of the one of the other oddities, right? So there are there are kind of two main groups that they're that are pursuing this, right? So there's a Gilman group that were calling things G G slash F, and then they kind of called it, started calling it G and eventually became GS. The Burn Bomber group, which included a whole bunch of affiliated labs, including Lefkowitz, right? Um, were using a different name. They call it the nucleotide dependent factor or N. So there's a whole bunch of papers, <laughs> thousand papers uh, on there. Okay. Um, the N protein, NS protein, NI protein, NO protein. Um, and it, it was a confusing, <laughs> I mean, if you're in the field, you knew, but if you're not in the field, that's, that's I mean, how do you, how do you sort that out? Um, so what, um, happened in about 1989 after, you know, when it was clear there are lots of G protein alpha subunits there, 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 you know, people have found, you know, alpha 14, 15, you know, there are lots and lots of them in all these different families. This, this nomenclature thing wasn't going to play anymore. They had, they had to sort it out. So, so as I heard the story, Al Gilman and, and Lutz Bomber, Pern Bomber got together at some meeting and kind of hashed it out. And, you know, I don't know if they flip a coin, I don't you know, arm wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> don't know, don't know what they did, but they finally settled on G. So from from that point on, it's it's G protein. Um, and, and to be you know to be careful about it, I always call them hetero. I try to try to say heterotrimeric G protein, yes, because yes. as a as a name for a protein, G protein is terrible, terrible. <laughs> it's like there, 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 there's a there's a band out there called the the. Right? Oh my God. Okay. I thought 14 3 3 was horrible. That, that's, but that's... Well, 14 3 3, it, it actually it, it has something to do with its, its, its size, its isoelectric. Yes. Yes. But still. But, but, but if you just if you just literally search for G protein, every word that ends in ing protein comes up. I mean, okay. it, it's terrible, terrible name. But here we are. That's, that's the name they said a lot. So that's what we have. <laughs> um, 
but the, the 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 funny the funny thing was is so that during that time right so um burn bomber lab was in houston at, at baylor um and i st i started at baylor so i you know was was in a, in a lab affiliated with his so a former postdoc of his um so i kind of was there during a lot during a lot of this time period and um his car he had you know so so it's kind of famous you know leftquits has, has a license plate turbo bob right oh i um, didn't know that <laughs> <laughs> um, so Lutz's Lutz's license plate was N not G. Oh God! <laughs> Did he end up changing it to G not N? I, I don't know if he changed his license plate, but but I I went to visit him one time, many years later, uh, after he'd moved to UCLA, and he had his license plate on the wall. Wow, <laughs> lovely. Yeah. And, and he told me, well, you know, that that's my Nobel Prize right there. I lost it when mm -hmm. I gave up the name. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible, um, you know, how, how these discoveries end up happening. Mistakes and little mm -hmm. footnotes on a uh, on a data sheet that says your ATP is not pure with some GTP in there. I think it's just phenomenal. So all, all, all the students and postdocs out there who have an experiment that goes funky and, you know, yeah. there, there could be opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely you're not the first one to have an experiment go awry <laughs> yeah yeah so. and it's unfortunate that we don't get a chance to talk about what went wrong and what are the experiments that actually mm -hmm. didn't work out um and we've had this idea and i think i've said it multiple times on the podcast i haven't acted on it but um it's, it's gonna come sooner or later we're gonna get to it to launch the uh the journal of negative results Mm -hmm. where you actually get to present yeah, but the thing about the thing about negative results is it, it, like 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 the paper they did on aluminum you know you have to do it carefully enough that you prove it's negative you have to really spend you know it's like i tried exactly. it and I no no you really got to try yes to do a negative and then and if you don't then you haven't really learned Absolutely. Much. <laughs> yes I, I think it's Worms. as important to have yeah. the correct controls to do it enough times to make sure that you have the right cell system you have the right tools to actually show that the thing is not working. Yeah. And I think we don't put enough emphasis on the negative results because people keep discarding them or putting them mm -hmm. aside and they get lost. And then you're only focusing on what what's positive because of of the way publications work. Right. right. And, and you probably are aware, or, or people don't think about it, but we're in the middle of a nomenclature war at the moment, right? So there's a whole camp of people that say Barrestin or Beta Arrestin. And there's a whole camp of people that says Arrestin too. And, yes. Uh, yeah, it makes it confusing. And, you know, I don't know if they're ever going to, you know, shake hands and make nice or <laughs> what's going to happen I don't know. there. It's not done by fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had multiple guests who called it called Arrestins or Beta Arrestins or Barrestins use these terms. And every time I have to say my favorite is Beta Arrestin. Oh, not necessarily. Yeah, there, also, right. There, there, there are now proteins that people have gone out of their way to call alpha arrestins, which are you know kind of members of that super family. Yes. So there's, there's another literature out there that kind of picks up there on is. that theme. So I, I, I don't know. There is. I'm going to say arrested. I mean visual. You know, when I say alpha arrestin or arrestin, but you know, but exactly. I kind of come from that camp. So I started out with N proteins as well, because right? mm -hmm. that's that was my background yeah. that wasn't politically that was my <laughs> <laughs> no no I, I think I think there's there's that and especially now we might 
need to revisit the term arrestants because in I initially they were discovered as arresting PCR sure. signaling, and now we know that they're not exactly just arresting the signal. They that's actually right. function as scaffold protein. So maybe that's a debate that we can bring up at a <laughs> bring all these groups together and, and have a proposal to think about the nomenclature. But then the, the 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 issue with changing it completely to one side or yes. inventing a new term even is that you risk that older literature yes just disappears it, it goes into the you know into the memory hole and exactly no one finds exactly. it again exactly yeah. so. oh, that's a tough choice adapt with with the new realities of protein function or lose the history behind it maybe we should well couple of years we can come back and have a discussion about <laughs> the history of arrestins and bitter arrestins and barestins and who who did who did win that argument in that sense mm -hmm. so so one kind of so that's kind of that, that that gets us up to you know there, there are g proteins right so that then yeah. at that point you know people were using the purified g proteins to feed reconstitution efforts so in the Leftwitz lab, you know, Rick Serione was there. Yeah. You know, they were purifying the receptor in that lab. The G protein was coming from Luke Spoonbomber's lab. The adenocyclase was coming from Eva Neer's lab. Um, Gilman was trying to do it all in-house. So he was getting receptor from Elliot Ross. The G protein was Gilman's lab and Paul Sternweiss. And they, they had a guy there, Maurice Smeagol, who was purifying the, 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 uh, the adenocyclase, not necessarily the G protein, um, trying to do exactly the same thing. Um, to show that this was the system that worked, and and that's basically what they showed. So that so now mm. here we are. We have G proteins, and they work. And they're they're heterotrimers. They're related to the visual transducin system. Um, yeah. So wow. yeah, but it was it was an interesting ride for the part where I was you know I, I, being in the labs I was in. I read all the papers that were before my time, which is why I know, I know the history. Um, but then was there to watch. The, kind of the end of this so it was it's uh, it was an interesting moment in science how oh, amazing now we have an an idea and and then a timeline actually as to how we came to naming the g proteins g proteins and het and you're right they're heterotrimeric g proteins but we always talk about the g the g protein um and then again there is the small gtpases which is another for, for those of us that also work on the small guys you know, it, yes. it, it it's a little it can be a little confusing. So I so those yeah. I call small CTP aces just to yes separate them a little bit. <laughs> well, nomenclature is very important so that we all speak it the is. same language. Yeah, yeah. So I so one other thing I just want to kind of you know to just to to bring out because it's kind of you know having gone back and reread all these papers to kind of get ready for this, um, I was really struck by a couple of things. So so one you know. The, the way we publish papers is very, very different than it was back in the 70s, 80s, um, even when, it, when, I, when I was active kind of in the 90s, right? Um, a lot of the stuff I did as a, as a graduate student and postdoc doesn't even get into the methods <laughs> of a paper anymore. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's like I was ma making constructs and, you know, it's like you don't even, people don't even say I'm, I'm using, you know, I'm using JRK5, well, human, rat, well, you know, they don't even, where'd you get it from? Whose is it? Yeah, they don't, they don't say anymore. Um, but Nowadays, people seem to be in this this thing where you know, and and review, you know, you blame journals or blame reviewers. I don't know who you blame, um, blame blame all the journals with one syllable names. <laughs> um, 
we have this mindset that we kind of have want to have one, the one paper to rule them all. So instead of incremental, you know, it's, it's, it's salami science. You can't publish all these little papers, but this is what these people did. Right. And it, it had several advantages. One, you, you could see their advances and also their missteps. Whereas now in the big paper that the missteps are just buried, you know, you'll never know. Um, and it, because there are a couple of groups that are kind of slogging it out step by step, come the end of the story, you're very confident that that's the way the world works rather than here's a, here's a, here's a one big paper with, you know, 30 supplemental figures and what, you know, whatever, whatever that, that tries to be the end all be all. And, you know, if it's from one group and it, it discourages other groups from going back and trying to repeat anything that they've done. Um, Cause you know, who wants to repeat things, but I mean, repetition is the, key of science right if, if it's not repeatable why it's not just that it's repeatable for you three times but it should be repeatable for anybody this is one of the big causes of the the data replication crisis and and particularly for people who are trying to advance things into into pharma they can't repeat the experiments that that people do in academia and and it's partly because they haven't been done by that many people and so things are reported that are a little bit twitchy you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of robust data. I, I want, you know, someone new comes into the lab. I want them to do an experiment. I want them to be able to repeat it. I'd love to see it. Somebody else from another lab, you know, someone else does a paper that they use some of our data, yeah. you know, and repeat some of it. I'm, I'm happy. You know, it's not a competitor. They're, they're, they're showing that we were on the right track. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, there are other, I mean, there are, there are other problems. So another one is that, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, so I'm, I'm very much kind of a team scientist, right? So I'm, I'm, I work as part of a larger group. Um, and, you know, I'm happy with that. But if I, if I were a postdoc coming up, you know, I, I need, I need a paper on the first author. And if you're in, you know, we, we just sent out a paper this week to nature. Okay. Good luck. You know, <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it, it's one guy plus several other guys for several years, small labs absolutely cannot afford to do that kind of science. They can't, they can't afford to wait because they need to make progress on their grants. They need, you know, they, they just, they don't have the money up yeah. front to, to do that. Uh, so, you know, so that, that doesn't work, but also for the people that are actually working on a project, how do they get credit? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the fifth author on a paper that got sent to sell, you know, and, and that, that's, yeah. that's two years of my work. Right. And, and this can, this can happen in, in labs and that's not good for anybody. So I don't know, you need to think about the, the, the publishing model and are, are we, tending in the right direction or not, you know? And the other thing is these, you know, kind of winner take all big papers, you know, they're, they're an incentive for um, misbehavior, let's say, <laughs> right? The, the, the reward's too high, so. I, I think so. And I think, well, it, I think we should dedicate a whole episode to talk about this and maybe have a panel of, of, of scientists, but I, I agree with you. I think having waiting three, five, six, seven years to publish something because you want an entire story and you right. want to show it all, not good. One, because Just, you run, you, you might be scooped. Then yep. think about your trainees. Yeah. Uh, well, you, that's another thing. I, I, I am not a fan of the concept of scooping per se, right? Because in my experience, I mean, right, Cyclonodontal cyclase five and six, but my paper yeah. was second, right? I cloned GRK five, I was second. It was the you know, same year, somebody else, but there was somebody else, and I, it, it didn't affect me badly one way or the other, right? I mean, it's like it's still so. But now with these know. big winner take all papers, there, there's a, there's this mindset that you 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 can't you know 
you have to carve out a little domain that nobody else wants to compete in. And I think that yeah. boxes yourself yeah. into areas that are less interesting. You know, I think having a paper published on the topic that you're working on is not necessarily a bad thing. It depends on it, what that paper contains. One, it either proves that you're actually working, well, it can prove that you're working on something very interesting and you're not the only one. Yep. It can also um, tell you what to avoid, or it can also allow you to reshape your strategy on that topic That's and get creative. Yes. Um, but what I'm think when when I think about scooping, I think in the position of a PI, it's one mm -hmm. thing if somebody publishes a paper on a topic that you're interested in because you're in there for the long run. What I think about is PhD students and postdocs mm -hmm. who need that paper because they don't have five, six, mm -hmm. ten years to spend in the same lab. Mm -hmm. You have to move on. Um, and then that's when you can need to get creative with your PI to try and figure out a way to get a publication out there. And I think, for example, I, th I think about my track record and the time I spent in, in Tom Sackmeyer's lab. I had I worked five years to publish one molecular pharmacology paper. Uh, we were two authors on it, me and Tom. But then in the meantime, I developed an entire platform that allow you to plug and play virtually any GPCR to look at its pharmacology. And that resulted in multiple collaborations, right. which then resulted in publications. And out of mm -hmm. that work, there's still one piece of paper that hasn't come yeah. out yet. Mm -hmm. and, and that I gave the data back to the, our collaborators in 2015. And it's still not out there. And and I'm not saying it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but I think you have to pick your your timing and I like, I personally like the smaller papers, good GBC, a good molecular pharmacology paper, where you actually have the opportunity to tackle a specific topic without having to, it's not a cell paper. I mean, reading a cell paper <laughs> and to your point, figuring out if anything went wrong or anything wasn't done correctly in a cell paper, much more difficult. Mm -hmm. So... But but yes, I think we need to rethink that system. But that goes back, that is directly tied into the academic system itself. As you mentioned, you need to write, you need to publish to get grants to, to then again do the work to then publish again. But then you don't have six years when you start out to go out with one cell paper or yep. nature paper or you name it. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it's a system set up for the rich to stay rich. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's really, it's really yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is. Unfortunately, it is. But yeah, definitely, I think there is there is more to discuss on that topic. So maybe we should we should think about a a, a panel to discuss the. It, it, it was it was good enough to do it that way to found this field. Uh, that's that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I think so too. I think so too, and I think it's also important to your point. I like the idea of you know, I, I like the fact that these papers were published periodically, and you can kind of follow the story, figure out what others were doing, and it was a race to mm -hmm. get to that point, and yeah. it was difficult. But you know, we got to discovering G proteins and give them right. the gene at the end name. Oh yeah, there's one. There's one. One other disadvantage I definitely want to mention. So, I think people are are less willing to share data, right? So, the, so the the big guys who are sitting on a big story, they they're going to go to a meeting and they're going to listen and they're going to tell you what they published already. They're not going to tell you what's new, and they're going to discourage their students from going to meetings. And I and I've seen this in big labs. So, it's 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 bad 
for all those people's careers. And it's, it's bad for the whole field because you, you could learn something that would inform your work if people were willing Agreed. to talk about what they're working on. But a lot of people are not because they're they're hoarding their data. I mean, it's their data. They can do what they want with it, but they're hoarding it to save it up for the... Yeah, for the big the papers. Big yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, 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 all of this is interconnected. You have the grants, you have the big labs, the PIs, the academic system, then you have the publication, uh, the journals and everything. I think there's a, it does warrant a, a special space to discuss these and maybe figure out ways how we can improve upon these. Great. Thank you so much, Richard. This was amazing. Oh, sure. it's um, fun. Hopefully, hopefully it was informative and people enjoy it. <laughs> I, I hope so. I really enjoyed learning more about the key figures and the uh, the key players who got us to where we are today, or at least to opened up the possibilities to to work with G proteins. And now we know that GS was the first one that was identified. Well, but then you know it's like retroactively, right? It's transducing <laughs> by a mile. Yes, yes. Well, it depends on how how you look at it. Yes, no, definitely. That's one question I had before uh before we 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 close up on gs and you mentioned having two splice variants the gs well the GS. well there, there are more but those are the two main ones yeah what do we know about these splice variants <laughs> not i've much. always wondered honestly not much even after all this time they, they they're very similar so i'm mean, i'm sure there's someone out there that might that might have little tidbits that are a little bit different but but basically they're they're interchangeable so and some tissues have only the small one and some tissues have both that i wonder higher one so i wonder what, why mother nature did that that way the other last comment i wanted to really mention is that these cells um that that paul took to gilman's lab I, the the thinking when you were mentioning the story in my head i was like oh my god these are actually gs null or knockout cells yes that naturally well not naturally they're they they selected but yeah yeah but they were well, they yeah but they, but they got lucky in their selection because it turned out that the that the parent cells have only one active allele for gs so they only had to knock out one not two <laughs> wow so if they had two their screen may not have worked right so exactly exactly what i when i meant by natural is it wasn't man-made they didn't well crispr wasn't crispr right <laughs> wasn't there yet oh, but so it was, it was a was standard gen genetic select you know it was not not adding a mutagen but adding yeah. uh, something that would kill the cell by activating the signaling pathway and you just you, you know you ask a biological question you get a biological answer you know it, it, yeah. it the cell found a way to survive and that was one way to do it was just get rid of that one gene and there you go. did it wow and then that that helped helps helped us figure all these things out mm -hmm. fantastic looking forward to our next discussion i'm going to stop recording thank you again for joining right. me today thank you Mary. and i'll talk to you in the next episode can i ask you for a favor please subscribe to our dr gpcr youtube channel Many of you come back regularly to watch our videos, like the monthly video edition of the newsletter, but aren't subscribed. Having more subscribers will help us get you more content. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We would like to thank you for listening, thank our guests for joining us, and also would like to take a moment to thank our team members, Attila, Ines, Monserrat, Ivana, Andreina, and Balint. A huge thank you to our Dr. GPCR ecosystem partners, 
Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Multinomolecular, and Orion Biotechnology. If you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter delivered directly to your inbox by visiting ecosystem.drgpcr.com slash newsletter dash sign dash up. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.